If you would, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. We'll pick up where we left off three weeks ago. 1 Kings 21, beginning in verse 1. Now Namoth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. And then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. And so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel who is in Samaria. And behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you. 
Because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city shall dogs eat. And any one of him, any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how, it, how Ahab has humbled himself before me? And because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that you have written this for our teaching and for our proof, our reproof and for our correction and for our training in righteousness. We ask that your spirit would be in work at work doing all of those things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My family and I, not only from Vidalia, but my, my family actually grows Vidalia onions. And beginning about the, the, the first of, uh, kind of the first signs of fall, around Labor Day or so, uh, we go out and we plant what we call onion beds, which is basically we take onion seeds and we sow them in the ground at a very, very, very high population, like millions of plants per acres, per acre. And when those onion plants get to size, about the size of a number two pencil, uh, each one of them is pulled by hand and then wrapped with a rubber band and then hauled to another field where they'll live until they're harvested. So it's transplants. Well, in order for those plants to be pulled by hand, the the ground has to be moist or else you'll pull the tops away from the bulbs and kill the plant. In order for that to happen, it has to be watered. The ground has to be watered kind of lightly but but very regularly so that the, the roots actually pull out of the ground instead of ripping off the plants. When, I, when Casey and I were um, first married, within the first six months of our marriage, we, we lived in my great-grandmother's house, which is adjacent to where my brother had onion plants planted that year. And so my dad, uh, who was also working on the farm at that time, started the irrigation late in the afternoon, you know, 6, 7 o'clock, close to dark. And he said, Are you, I'm going to start it, you turn it off. And so two or three hours later, I was to go and to turn the irrigation pump off and stop the pivot so that it wouldn't over-irrigate the plants. And I did turn it off, only it was about 7 o'clock the next morning. 
the pivot had been walking around in a circle all night long and the pump had been running all night long. And so what we have in, instead of you know, just kind of a lightly, lightly wet uh, dirt was a mud hole. The onion beds were irrigated, perhaps a bit too much. At that time, things are different now. Our irrigation systems didn't turn themselves off. Uh, the pump didn't care how long it had been running and the pivots didn't care how long they had been walking. They would just go and go and go until you either ran out of water or you went and switched it off yourself. The irrigation system, without some sort of intervention, just multiplied moisture. What we have here in at least the first half of First Kings 21... What we can learn is that passivity, when it comes to sin, just multiplies the sin. Passivity multiplies sin. The existence of of passive sin in Ahab comes to no surprise. We noticed it very heavily in in chapter 20, but it's especially acute with regard to this, this interaction with Naboth over Naboth's vineyard. And so what, what's going on in verses 1 through 4 is, is Ahab goes to Naboth and asks him to give him his vineyard. Because why? Because he wants to make it his own vegetable garden. Here at the outset of chapter 21, we already kind of have this, this, this big problem with the king of Israel. Not even with regard to the passivity, but just regard, regarding the evil nature of, of his request in the first place. We have this king who has everything that he wants and desires... Being greedy, he wants the things from his people. He wants Naboth's vineyard. He doesn't have a vegetable garden. He wants a Naboth, he wants a vegetable garden. So he goes and asks Naboth. The greed just bleeds out of the text. Not only that, but, but what he's asking to do with this vineyard, which is to make for himself a, a vegetable garden, is also evil in nature. The only other time that term is mentioned in the Old Testament is in a passage in Deuteronomy where it references what the Israelites underwent in uh, Egyptian society, being slaves and, and serving the Egyptians in their vegetable gardens. So even at the outset, before we kind of get to the main part of the text, we see that, that this, this man has not changed at all. Naboth refuses his request. And so Ahab goes home and basically pouts. He goes home vexed and sullen and he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat food. And that night when he didn't come downstairs for supper, Jezebel runs upstairs and what, what's wrong with you? What, what's the matter with you? What are you doing? And he tells her the story. All right, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else it will please you or, or else if it will please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And then Jezebel, perhaps asking the most probing question of all kind of the Ahab narrative, asked the question, do you now govern Israel? In other words, she's asking, who's king? Aren't you king? And the answer here, of course, is not that Ahab's king, but his wife 
Jezebel is king. And so she takes the matter up into her own hands. She says, I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And so she orchestrates this plan, right? She says she takes the king's seal and she writes a letter in his name and she sends it to Naboth's community and she tells him, declare a fast and, and have Naboth kind of sit at the head of the fast and then incite some worthless men to make a false accusation against him. An accusation that he has committed blasphemy, which according to biblical law is punishable immediately by death. He would be stoned to death. And so Jezebel, having come up with this plan, she sends the letter to Naboth's community in verse 11. The men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city did as Jezebel sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people saying, Naboth cursed the God and king. And so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And so we have this horribly heinous crime having been committed by the people who were supposed to be leading the people of Israel, by the king who was supposed to be leading the people of Israel. But where is the king when all of this is going on? His name is mentioned a couple of times in verses 8 through 14, but it's but he himself doesn't show back up in the narrative until verse 15. In other words, throughout this whole entire crime, Ahab has been absent. Ahab's greed, having created this problem of, I want something and I can't get it. His greed created the problem, but yet he steps away and becomes completely passive when it comes to actually executing the plan to get the vineyard. Ahab's passivity has multiplied not only his sin, but his wife's sin and the sin of the people of Israel. We see here where, where Ahab's sin, Ahab's passivity, yields more quantity of sin on his own behalf, but also more involvement in the sin from the people of Israel. Passivity multiplies sin. And we see the pattern here, right? We, we see kind of, uh, how, how it just kind of creeps down and gets worse and worse and worse. We see what, what started with just a little bit of greed turns into a little bit of pouting, which turns into a little bit of, uh, of passivity, you know, letting his wife go on and do whatever she wants. And then this passivity turns into a little bit of lying, which turns into a little bit of murder. And now the, the blood of Naboth is not only just on his hands, it's not only just on Jezebel's hands, but it's on the hands of the people of Israel, which the Lord will confront him for in just a moment. Ahab was too passive to do the thing himself, and Ahab was too passive to put a stop to the thing itself. He knew how evil his wife truly was. Passivity multiplies Sin, but I get it. You may say to me, you know, well, pastor, I don't really struggle with passivity, at least not in the way, the same way that Ahab does, right? I don't have a, 
uh, a pagan wife who's running Israel for me while I, you know, pout and nap on the bed. That's fair enough. Ahab's a king who really, it seems like on the surface at least, who just really doesn't care. And again, you you may say to me, you know, well, pastor, I, I kind of do care about things, especially my sin. I do care about it. Few of us are, are, are kind of bold enough to say that we don't care about our sin. We'd, we'd probably put it a different way. We'd put it in the category of procrastination instead of passivity. But what we know, what the Bible teaches and what Ahab teaches us here is that, that passivity, especially in the form of procrastination, multiplies sin. Because we think that, that, that just by, by putting something off, that it will fix itself. We think that, that, that time might fix our temptations. We think that putting something off might fix the desires of the flesh. We think that procrastination, perhaps, might make me more holy. But that's not how... It's not how sin works. It's not how irrigation systems work. You have to go and you have to turn them off. It's not to, to kind of use an illustration that's a bit more familiar. That's not how water faucets work, or at least most of them, the ones in my house. You have to actually go turn them off. They don't, they don't turn themselves off. Well, the same thing is true with our sin. Being hands off with regard to our sin, with the desires of the flesh, with the pride of the eyes, with with our temptations, doesn't, doesn't fix anything. It only multiplies the problem. And so we have a warning here not to procrastinate our sin, not to put off dealing with it, not to be passive with regard to godliness. Why? Because sin is a serious thing. So serious that it, that it requires condemnation. And though Ahab was, was passive regarding his kingship and ultimately his sin, God would not be passive with regard to Ahab's condemnation. God was not going to copy Ahab's behavior. Right, and and uh, right after Ahab goes and, and takes his vineyard, it seems like the word of the Lord comes kind of almost immediately to Elijah. And when it comes, we notice right offhand that this word of the Lord is not oriented towards helping Ahab. Right? It's not oriented towards you know, announcing a drought so that Ahab might repent of his sin and turn to the Lord. It's not oriented towards battle instructions and promises that he would win his next, his next war against the next nation like we did in chapter 20. It doesn't take very long to realize that this is a word of condemnation. Condemnation for what, though? What God tells Elijah to go and say to Ahab in verse 19 and then subsequently, what Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, says on behalf of the Lord in verses 20 through 24, it, it has a noticeable pattern to it. All right, verse 19, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? 
which is followed by, and you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Nahath shall, shall dogs lick up your own blood. There's a pattern there. The same pattern we find in verses 20 and following, right? Uh, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because, here's the important part, you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Which is followed by the judgment, right? There's this pattern that Elijah, or that God, through Elijah, announces to Ahab himself. And it's the pattern of the identification of sin followed by the condemnation of Ahab. The identification of sin followed by subsequent judgment. Verse 19. God accused Ahab of killing, which is a verb that's ripped right out of the sixth commandment. Accused him of killing and taking possession. In verse 20, he accused Ahab of selling himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And both times it's followed by condemnation. The the principle that we're taught here, and not only here, but all the way throughout Scripture, is that sin requires condemnation. This is a pattern that, that, that all of us in the room are probably familiar with. We've been taught it since we were kids in Sunday school. And, and it's a pattern that, that, quite frankly, Ahab himself should have been familiar with. Right, he's been warned of his sin. He's experienced the Lord's judgment through the, the, the promise of a drought, through prophets, through curses. Ahab should have known this concept, this theological idea that sin requires condemnation. But the second part of that, that concept, right, the condemnation part, up to this point, at least, has, has really been stated more kind of in theory, more in general, more kind of out here in the ether. But that's not how the condemnation works here. This time, when the Lord condemns Ahab, He makes his condemnation in the concrete, in the specific. He states explicitly what this condemnation looks like. And this is a condemnation that is most severe. In verse 19, God promises in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Nahab or Naboth shall dogs lick up your own blood. In verse 20, I have found you because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 21, behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And perhaps what makes this condemnation so explicit and so specific and so concrete is the fact that he references the kings that came before him. Verse 22, remember Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Remember Basha, the son of Ahijah. Remember what I did to them. He's referring back to a passage in chapter 15, verse 29, where as soon as these kings were succeeded by their predecessors... They were wiped off of the face of the earth. 
Right? Basha, when he uh, succeeded Jeroboam, he left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah. This condemnation, there's no guessing about what's coming. It's specific, it's concrete, it's exact. He not only stops there, but he continues in verse 23. The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Verse 24. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There's no guessing what this condemnation, what this judgment is going to look like. And if we actually take verse 29 into account and kind of read it back into these verses here. I think it becomes pretty obvious that not only are all these things going to happen. But to make it worse, Ahab is going to watch them happen before he dies. Sin requires condemnation. And what we have here is condemnation presented before us in the concrete. And I think like Ahab, we can sometimes kind of become disconnected with that theological concept. But it's here that that we get the reminder that that condemnation, the judgment of God is not just a theological concept. But it's a reality. It happens in real time and space. Sin requires the shedding of blood. The the kind of shedding of blood that makes your skin crawl. Condemnation is not just a theological concept but a reality. And it should be a reality. That reminds us that God does not deal passively with sin. Like we may deal with him sometimes. The explicit nature of the condemnation here is a reality that reminds us of the dangers of treating sin with passivity, of treating sin with procrastination, of procrastinating the things of God, our calls to holiness and our calls to godliness in general. Instead of dealing passively with sin, God deals with it at the maximum level of force. Sin requires condemnation. But the last three verses of the chapter catch us a bit by surprise. Yes, sin requires condemnation. But we realize also that condemnation capitulates to repentance. In verses 25 and 26, we're reminded... Of Ahab's wickedness. Just, just kind of at the both ends of the Ahab narrative. We have in chapter 16. At the end of chapter 16. Uh, this, this banner. Ahab was the most evil of all the kings of Israel. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And provoked the Lord to anger. And here we have it right here again in verses 25 and 26. A reminder. Just how evil this man was. There was none who sold himself to do what what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like Ahab. 
whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Again, he doesn't get to escape his relationship with his wife. Verse 26, he acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. And then in verse 27, we, we learn something most surprising. When Ahab heard these words, these words that have just been pronounced by God through the prophet Ahab. When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. text is pretty obvious. Ahab changes. But immediately, our hearts kind of flood with doubt. Like, surely a man so wicked and so rotten as Ahab could, could never repent, right? Surely this man is way too far gone to repent and turn back to God. He's too bad. He's too sinful. He's too wicked. Surely this is just some sort of false repentance. You can't believe it. But verses 28 and 29 correct our, our sort of graceless hearts. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? If there was any person on the face of the earth who would probably doubt Ahab's repentance and doubt the ability of this man to turn to the Lord, it was probably Elijah. And the Lord comes to Elijah and says, Have you seen how he has humbled himself before me? And because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. The word of God makes clear whatever doubt we might have regarding Ahab's repentance. God settles that issue for himself. He speaks to Elijah as if he were speaking directly to our kind of doubtful hearts. Have you seen? And as a result, he relents. Ahab, you don't have to watch all of these judgments, all of these condemnations come to fruition in your lifetime. Which is a grace. Condemnation capitulates to repentance. God condemns. But at the same time, he calls all people everywhere to repent. To call on the name of Christ. That they might be saved. Repentance is always an option for God, with God. Condemnation capitulates to repentance. And not only that, but to be theologically correct and to be theologically well kind of filled out. We also must notice the fact that, that wickedness capitulates to grace. There's a reason for the placement of verses 25 and 26. Look at where they're, they're, your ESV has parentheses around him because it's, it's, the author is, is, is drawing us back to the fact this was a wicked man who was helpless and hopeless save in the grace of God. But God intervenes. 
wickedness capitulates to grace. We, we know that fr- from this particular story, as, as wicked as we have seen this man be, in fact, in the first half of the chapter, again, remind you, he's been accused by God of murdering an in- innocent man just on behalf of his greed, just on behalf of his wants. But by the end, we realize that there is no sinner so wicked that God cannot change him. That's the climax of the chapter. The the, the fact that there is no sinner so wicked that God cannot change him. Two concluding remarks in reference to that statement. We've all been, been hurt and saddened by those who have given themselves to their sin. We've been hurt personally throughout our lives. We've been hurt as a body. But you need to be reminded of something. There is no sinner so wicked that God cannot change him. Pray like crazy. Second remark. There is no sinner so wicked that God cannot change him. In other words, he can not only change them, but he can change you. We need to realize that the power of sin is less than the power of grace. The power of grace is greater than the power of sin. Whether it refers to Ahab, whether it refers to those whom we love, or whether it refers to our own sanctification, the power of grace is greater than the power of sin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are sovereign. And we thank you, Lord, that your grace is greater than our sin. Indeed, its power is infinitely greater than our sin. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.